you know, when what I realize is if someone is, has dependency issues, it's not out in the open. Sometimes it is, I guess, but not for us. When I did try to broach the subject, when I would say, gosh, you know, drinking a lot and hey, what's going on over there? He would get angry and it would just shut the conversation down. And this is where I realized now that I was very complicit in what was happening because I allowed it to go unsaid, right? We both of us were, had this unspoken agreement, which is I'm going to hide that I'm, you know, doing things over here and you're not going to say anything about it because, you know, at that point in my life, I wanted things to stay nice and even and not messy. And I didn't want to deal with anything negative. I wanted things to be bright and shiny and happy. And they were on the outside. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Hi, it's Ronit popping in before the episode officially begins. To let you know that my book, When She Comes Back, will be out on May 11th, 2021. It is going to be on Kindle, paperback, hardcover, and audiobook. And it's currently in pre-order right now at all your favorite book sellers, including the big ones, but especially the small ones. And I highly encourage you to pick up a copy in pre-order at one of the independent booksellers you love. And if you send me a copy of your transaction, just take a picture of your purchase, send an email to me or send an Instagram message to me at Ronit Plank with a picture of your purchase, we will send you an audiobook of the memoir free. I was able to record the audiobook with Cedar House Audio in West Seattle, and I would love to thank you for supporting the book and independent booksellers with a free audiobook download of the book. And so all you have to do is either send me an email or send me a direct message on Instagram at Ronit Plank. And if you'd like to sign up for my newsletter, I send it about twice a month and it just has news on podcast episodes as well as book news and appearances and interviews and new writing and things like that. So if you're interested in that, just let me know in your message and I will be happy to sign you up for that. And thank you so much for being a listener and for showing up for these stories and for helping me build this community. I'm so grateful for your listenership. Today, my guest is Layla Taraf. She was one of the founding team members at Walmart.com, served as chief people officer at Pete's Coffee and Tea, and is currently the head of people and employee experience for Allbirds. She's also a regular guest lecturer at Berkeley Law School, and her new book is Strong Like Water. Welcome, Layla. Thank you. Thanks, Ronit. I'm so happy that you're here. So I'm very excited to dig in and talk about your book, Strong Like Water. You've written about your career and personal path in the following way, that you were a strong and effective business leader and the successful daughter of immigrants, the mother of a toddler, but that you were disconnected from your own feelings and had little patience for the feelings of others, that you had spent your life leading from the head, convinced that any display of vulnerability would make you 
soft. So I'm so intrigued by this. And the first thing I want to ask you is where were your parents from? My parents were both Lebanese and we actually lived in Lebanon until I was seven years old. And then we moved to the States. Mm-hmm. I moved to this country when I was just about four, but we had spoken a little bit of English in Israel. So you were, you were enough older than me to probably really feel that move. Oh, yeah. I, I, I felt it uh, culturally. It's, it's interesting when you, when you move countries, and I don't know if you feel this way, but you were a little bit younger, you, you realize um, that you are both and neither. So when I'm in the States, if people say, oh, hey, what, 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 where are you from ethnically? I'll say, oh, I'm Lebanese. And then when I went back to Lebanon uh, back in uh, 2008 with my daughter and, and people said, well, where are you from? What are you? And I thought, oh, well, I am in Lebanon. And I said, I'm American. <laughs> and, right. and I realized, right, that, you, that w- when you move cultures, you become both and neither at the same time. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of, you have to claim your identity in a, in a very specific way. Yeah, I remember going back to study uh, for a semester of, of college in Israel. And I remember being really kind of culture shocked because it was my first time back since I'd lived there as a kid. And I realized, oh, I'm not really Israeli, you know, but right. but in, in the U.S. with my name and with my background, I seemed a lot more exotic than that. <laughs> right? <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> so you came to this country when you were seven. Are you, do you have siblings? I do. I have a younger brother and a sister. Um, it's a little more complicated. My parents were out here as students and they had student visas and I was born here in the States. But then um, my father was deported. I actually didn't know that until I started researching uh, my book and found out from a friend of his that the reason why we moved back to Beirut when I was 10 months old was because my father stopped going to school and then ultimately got deported. So we all went back to Lebanon. Ah. We stayed there till I was seven. My brother and sister were born in Beirut and we came back. And I grew up in Las Vegas because my father was in the casino business. Ah, interesting. So how did he get back into the country? How did he, how was he able to get you guys back here? Yeah, it's a good question. My mother's brother uh, was a professor uh, and he was a psychology professor at Fresno State. And in the early 70s, when the war, the civil war in Lebanon started getting to be bad, he was able to get visas for his mother, father and siblings and his siblings, children, which included me. Wow. OK, so that's real. I mean, I guess if you're happy that you you spent most of your life here, that's lucky. I don't want to presume that this was like the optimal place to grow, but been a much better, well, it's been a much better over the last 40, 50 years, I would say it was a much better place to to grow up than a war-torn country that was in civil war for 15 Mm -hmm. years. So Layla, where do you think you learned that you shouldn't allow yourself to feel pain? Or when do you think that became part of your, the way that you held yourself Mm -hmm. and conducted yourself? Gosh, it's such a good question. You know, I don't know that Any of us really know the moment when our internal belief system really took hold. (laughs) It probably happened over uh, a a series of incidences in my early life. You know, my mom and dad were very young parents. And, you know, as we just said, they moved to the States. They moved back. Um, uh, Lebanon was in in a very tough, um, 
time with with the civil war brewing and so there was just a lot of stress they didn't have um they didn't have a good relationship they fought like cats and dogs and i was the um eldest of three kids and so for whatever reason i took it upon myself to try to bring order to the chaos around me and i gosh i just i'm thinking now because we're talking about it maybe even the influence of what the environment the ambiance around me being in lebanon uh, at that point with things heating up maybe even had something to do with it but for myself i just i just something inside me thought okay well these guys are not getting along and i i someone needs to take control and i looked around there was nobody else i was the oldest and it was me um and and also i think you know my parents had a very traditional marriage you know, father worked, mother stayed home, took care of the kids. And, you know, my mom, lovely, lovely woman, she allowed me, she allowed me to step up and be the helper, uh, which is something I've taken care not to do with, with my daughter. And when, when my husband passed, when my daughter was three, there were moments, and I remember so distinctly, where she tried to take care of me. I can, I can take care of you, mommy. I can help you. And thank goodness at the time I was having her see a therapist. He goes, don't let her do that. And I would have to sit down with her and say, no, no, Nadia, I'm the mommy and you're the daughter. I take care of you for the first 25 years <laughs> and then you can take care of me. <laughs> and then I would kind of, you know, have it be sort of funny. Like, you know, don't take my joy away. I take joy in being your mom. And, you know, in that yeah. way, I've got to break the cycle, right? I didn't allow her mm -hmm. to, to take on my pain and to be my savior, my helper in the way that I did with my mother. Not that she asked me, I just did it, but she didn't stop me. Well, that's an interesting part of sort of the memoir journey or writing, which I learned myself because I, I too am the oldest in my family. There's only one other. And I stepped up big time like you did. And I think I sometimes wonder if that was my birth order or just my personality or how much of a combination, because it is true that we kind of fall into these roles in our family. And I hear what you're saying, which is that you love your mom and, you know, have nothing, you're not blaming her at all. Just saying that in your family, you took on this role and really nobody stopped you. That's right. That's right. I do believe in birth order. I do think something happens when you're the eldest. I do think some of it might be cultural. You know, we come from very different cultures. Um, I had to go through a journey in reconciling how I felt about my mother. I always loved her, of course, but, you know, there were times where I resented her for not not being there for me and not not really being there to comfort me. Interesting, my father didn't either, but I took more issue with my mother than my father. And I don't know if that's just an unfair comparison that you expect more from your mother. I don't know. Uh, I um, think that's probably true because in writing, <laughs> right? I, I really think so because I noticed that I was able to muster up anger for other people in my life when I was young, when I was seven or eight years old for failing me or not meeting my expectations or for hurting me much more than my mother who was not around at the time. So in a way, it feels like maybe it was displaced because it's hard to be angry at your mom. Yes. Right? That's your that's your primary caregiver. So for me, the way it worked is I sort of pushed it underground and I acted nice and happy on the outside. But inside, I, I was feeling very abandoned and very hurt and very and quite resentful. And um, there's actually a scene 
in my in my book, when some of my beta readers read it, they said that really stuck out to them. It's right after my husband passed away and nobody was there for me. And I didn't even notice because I was so used to just taking care of business. And I remember my therapist who I was seeing said to me, wait, wait, none of your family were at the service for, for your husband? I said, well, and I started making excuses. Well, my father had to work and my mother had already done this. And then my brother, and he looked at me and he said, Layla, let's just imagine if this happened to your daughter, would there be anything that would have kept you from being there for her? And when he said that way, I was like, I was embarrassed. I'm like, no, you're right. And I realized how I had just been trying to explain it away and kind of be tough and act like I didn't care. Of course I cared. Did you also take care of your siblings when you were growing up? Um, I, my mother was very, very nurturing. So she was, you know, she, she was very, you know, she cooked, she cleaned, she took care of us in that way, but there wasn't emotional support there. Mm -hmm. You were on your own. And in that way, I, I was sort of uh, the person in the family that um, would give advice or, you know, be there if, if my brother and sister needed emotional support. Mm -hmm. So here you are growing up and you've got this sort of role in your family. And can you kind of take me up through teenage and early adulthood when you are discovering what you're good at? Because you ended up in these really well-known companies working, you know, in these positions of importance. So can you kind of talk about those early adult years prior to your marriage? Sure. Um, I, you know, I really have always been a helper. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician when I was in um, high school. I was a really good student. It, it was a path that was open for me, but neither one of my parents went to college, right? Neither one came from this country, so I wasn't getting any sort of advice. And I remember somebody said, uh, as a senior in high school, you want to be a doctor? That's like another 10 years. <laughs> you tell a 17-year-old 10 more years of school. I'm like, okay, I'm out. <laughs> and so I just, I, I went to, to school, to college, and I, um, and I was a business major with, a, with an emphasis in, in computer information systems. And I found that I was, you know, pretty good at it. And so I went back and I got my MBA from Berkeley. And, um, and then I just started falling into, um, uh, I really fell into recruiting because I was very good at sort of pattern recognition and finding the fit between people and companies and skill sets and needs. And I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and, and then that path took me into human resources, which was not a path I would have chosen. Um, uh, and I even resisted it. And luckily for me, I had a very strong female CEO at the right time in my career. Her name is Jean Jackson. Uh, she was the CEO of Banana Republic in the mid nineties. She is, uh, she was on the board of Nike. She's amazing. And I was uh, the director of recruiting at walmart.com very, very early days. I was employee number seven and we were growing like crazy. And this was when the intention was to have walmart.com be separate than Walmart Inc. Mm. Cause it was 1999 right. and, and it was all about the internet. <laughs> I remember. And uh, I remember those days yeah. <laughs> before the first implosion. And we had looked for, for, uh, for a head of HR for a year and just couldn't find anybody we liked. And finally, Jean said, Layla, you're doing the job. Why don't you take it? And, and at first I was like, oh gosh, I, I don't know. And, and 
you know, I love Jean. She's like, well, okay, look, take it or don't. You know, we got bigger fish to fry, so let's just go. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay, I'll take it. And thank goodness it was the best move I ever made. I would not have raised my hand. I would not have said, let me have it. So I am all have just always been grateful for Jean to see something in me and to give me the opportunity. And I guess for having enough courage to, or to, to, to say yes. And, and that's how it started. And that was, that was 20 years ago this year. Um, so seven years of Walmart, we, we, you know, we, we grew, we did well. I learned my craft. I hired a great team. Uh, I loved the people aspect and I loved I love the intersection of people and business because people are the enablers of business. And of course, now we say that very easily, right? We even call it human capital because HR has moved up the, the chain. But, you know, back in the you know, 80s, 90s, and even 2000, um, uh, it, it was really about strategy and operations. And, and the people side was just not as, um, I would say, overtly valued as it is today. And so I feel very lucky that I was able to get into a, um, a field that has grown in importance and is, have evolved over the last 20 years. And it's interesting, too, because I, I kind of did a double take when I when I read where you had worked and, and the area in which you'd concentrated and become expert as an interesting juxtaposition to the path that you've been on spiritually and emotionally and just in terms of self-growth because you were working with people. So I'm wondering how that idea that you, you describe yourself as spending so much time in your head and not the heart, how that worked when it came to staffing and, and that whole human resources piece. Yeah, that's such a great question. Well, you know, HR if, to be, I think, an, a, an effective HR leader, you really need to hold two lenses simultaneously at all times because you are simultaneously an advocate for employees while being an agent of the company. And you're always having to kind of go back and forth between the two. Sometimes you need to say, hey, we can't do that because as a business, we need we need to do this and this. And other times you need to go back to management and really be the voice of employees that that are, you know, that have very real needs. And it is a balance. It really is. And it's always a balance. And I and I didn't even realize it until I started thinking through my life and, and my journey that I have always been weaving back and forth between those two things. So you know, HR people who tend to to focus only on the people side aren't often as effective or respected within their organizations because they're not really helping to enable the organization. It's great that you're advocating for the employees, but are you building the organizational capabilities? Are you really being a partner to the business in the way that they need, right, to give them the resources and the capabilities that they need? On the other hand, if you're an HR person that's really all business, then then you're really not going to be very good at motivating, inspiring your workforce uh, and the culture probably isn't going to be very good and you probably are going to have retention issues. So you really have to learn to be a blend of the two. Which is maybe in part why why human resources traditionally became kind of like lower man, you know, down. Like it would, I don't want to say lower man on the totem pole, but you said that you kind of made a, a joke about HR. And I think that, that it, it must yeah. be a slippery slope because of what you have to integrate. Well, I think, I think, um, 
old school HR focused more on the administrative side of HR. So payroll benefits, you know, processing, um, dealing with employee relations issues after the fact. And those are needed, but those are administrative and downstream in nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they're, and they're not thought of as being strategic or upstream, right? Mm-hmm. But, but over the years, human resources has really evolved, right? Especially, and it depends on what field or what industry you're in. And here in Silicon Valley, right? I, I read a st- statistic once that the right developer can actually increase your revenues by 10x. So wow. the importance, right, of hiring one one person in a particular role, whether it's an, a developer for a software company or a creative in a product development company, um, is a big difference maker. And all of a sudden, companies started realizing, oh, hold on a minute, this people piece is important. We need to engage HR in the more strategic conversations that are happening around you know, what are our business needs and what are the capabilities that we require to meet those needs and how do those show up in our people? So did you meet your your husband in in this field? No, I met him at a party on Union Street in San Francisco <laughs> in 1998. Can you talk about the two of you? Sure. I had just come back from living in Paris. I did I my intention was to do a semester abroad when I was in business school and then I got a job with Netscape right when Netscape was taking off in the mid 90s as a recruiter. And I stayed for a year and I had just come back and I was, you know, trying to reintegrate back into the States. I went to a party and and there he was and we struck up a conversation right away. And uh, it was it was magnetic. And I resisted it at first because he was much younger than me. And I thought, oh, this, this isn't going anywhere. And I think for probably a year, year and a half. I would be half in, half out. Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. And finally, there was a day where he said, look, um, I really want to make a go at this and let, let's just give it a shot. And uh, I said, you know, it's been a year and a half. And I thought, OK, let's let's give it a shot. And then we got married a year later. And when you say a lot younger than you, what how, what was the age difference? <laughs> Ten years Mm-hmm. So Which, were you, you know, concerned? Uh, I was concerned. I was more mm-hmm. concerned than he was um, because I knew, right? If I was 35, he was 25. That's a big difference. I was quite frankly shocked that he was even interested in <laughs> someone that much older than him. But look, as we get older, we know that the difference between 25 and 35 is not the same as, you know, 45 and 55. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were in generally the same life stage, right? You know, post-college, mm-hmm. I was much more post-college, but, you know, we were living in the city. We were, you know, we had interesting jobs. We were, you know, out and about. So there wasn't that big of a difference on the surface, but of course there was inside. And that soon became evident as I, as we got married, I wanted to have kids. He resisted it at first. We ended up thankfully having our one daughter before mm-hmm. everything sort of unraveled. Do you want to talk a little bit about his, his, I guess his opiate use or, you know, what happened toward the end of your marriage? Yes, it's hard. I mean, I think when I met Daniel, he was, um, he, he liked to go out. He, he liked to drink. He liked to party. And I, I didn't really understand that that was 
a symptom or a sign of something deeper. And um, and the first year after the first year of our marriage, he was in a really bad bicycle accident. He he um, was going too fast around the curve, and he hit a guardrail, and he he actually flew off and down a mountain up here in Marin, and he broke um, two um, of his vertebrae in his mid back. And so, yeah, it was bad. And he he was in a back brace for three months and he had to lay flat and it was it was a bad time. And this was in 2002. So this was before we knew the strength of opiates. And of course, he was prescribed pain pills and very liberally. And I, in hindsight, I now can see that I don't think he ever stopped taking them throughout our seven-year marriage. So that happened after year one. And so for the next six years, I realized now that I think he just kept on taking them. And then, of course, he would start drinking. And um, at the end, um, he actually um, he actually moved out October 1st. And he passed away two months later of an accidental overdose. It was really fast, really, really fast before I even really knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. So are you saying that, um, well, why did he move out? Um, he started to say that he wasn't sure about things, that he wanted to think about things and um, needed some time. And at first I just thought, well, we were trying to have our second child. I thought this is the stress that comes with, you know, again, having to decide whether we wanted to do fertility treatments. And um, and then the next thing I knew, he said, no, I just need some space. And I thought, okay, well, go ahead. And I fully thought this was going to be something temporary. I didn't even tell my mom and dad that he had moved out until Thanksgiving and then he passed away the week after. I'm sorry. Thank you. It's hard to talk about still. Yeah. Um, and at this point, were you in active discussions about the opiates and just what the issues were? Like, did you, was that on the table as part of the issues in the marriage? No, it never was. It, um, you know, when, what I realize is if someone is, has dependency issues, it's not out in the open. Sometimes it is, I guess, but not for us. When I did try to broach the subject, when I would say, gosh, you know, drinking a lot and hey, what's going on over there? He would get angry and it would just shut the conversation down. And this is where I realize now that I was very complicit in what was happening because I allowed it to go unsaid. Right. We both of us were, had this unspoken agreement, which is I'm going to hide that I'm, you know, doing things over here and you're not going to say anything about it because, you know, at that point in my life, I wanted things to stay nice and even and not messy. And I didn't want to deal with anything negative. I wanted things to be bright and shiny and happy. And they were on the outside. And so if I broached the subject and I got a negative answer, I, I would... I would say, okay, and I would distract myself and I would, and I was very busy, you know, a young mother with a big job, I would go off and do something else. So you've changed so much in the past years. You're saying that you 
you you look back at it now and you know there there are things that were going on that maybe you didn't really address or you weren't facing do you feel like who you are now would have responded differently and been different in the marriage than you were oh, yeah. oh 100% i mean that's that's really my learning i was afraid of what i would find out if i pushed too hard i think i in my heart i knew right and i didn't want to admit it and that is the biggest way that I've changed now. I, I, I learned that, you know, you've heard that saying, what you resist persists. And mm-hmm. I resisted going, going deeper and allowing myself to feel, um, to feel full stop, <laughs> but really <laughs> to have the hard conversations around, hey, what's going on? How come, you know, uh, you're drinking so much? How come you don't want to have this conversation? How come I'm finding, you know, um, prescriptions for things here? And he avoided them and I allowed him to avoid them because I was avoiding them. I didn't want to have those conversations. And it's the way I was raised. We had, you know, right in in our home, it it was a very delicate detente between my mother and my father. And so we all kind of learned not to talk about things that were difficult or that were going to possibly, you know, have things, have things um, come up that were going to be hard Mm -hmm. to deal with. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, it's interesting because no one can really know, but, you know, your husband probably, you know, he was part of that relationship and part of that understanding too. Right. So. Yes. And and, and what's interesting is we never talked about it. Right. That's why that's what's so really, you know, when people talk about that, you um, you recreate the pattern of the cycle of, you know, how you were raised. I even though I had gone to therapy 10 years before we got married um, and I thought I had understood what my narrative was, I I really didn't. Right. And I was immediately drawn to somebody who I could step in and be the hero for. I'll save you, even though I didn't consciously think that. Somewhere deep in my psyche, in my subconscious, it touched something that was very familiar for me, which is, oh, I know what this is. This is broken and I can come in and I can can help and I can fix this. And really what I realized later is, Putting yourself in that role actually allows you to continue to hide. So if I, if I was going to be the hero in this, in this story, then that meant that you don't ever ask the hero what's wrong with them, right? The hero gets to hide. There's nothing wrong with the hero. <laughs> and so in a way, it gave me a very, very valid uh, excuse to not have to talk about the broken parts inside of me. So that has been part of my journey. Mm-hmm. I really understand what you're saying. I really, I get it. I really do because it's, I understand doing that work in therapy. And I think I remember you saying in an earlier conversation that you had done therapy, but you're, in your words, you said you didn't learn your lesson. Yeah. And is that, is that what you're referring to? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. And it's so hard, isn't it, to... I remember I went back to see the same therapist that I had seen before I had gotten married 10 years later. 
he was so tough on me. He was so hard on me. And he even said, what the fuck were you doing? You knew what this, what would happen. He was, and he was not like that before. And I finally said, I, I just, I just knew I could do it. And he said, oh, I see you, you thought, I know what this is. And you knew you could handle it because that's the role I'd been playing my whole life. And I'm like, yeah, that was it. And I wasn't, I wasn't able to break the cycle. Not in that moment. I wasn't. I, I got into a codependent relationship with someone that needed to be fixed, that needed mm-hmm. to be helped. Yeah, those, those are not, it's not easy to learn that and then to change. Yes. It's one thing to know it intellectually, but it's another thing yeah. to internalize it and have it shift your behavior, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't think everyone makes it. I don't think everybody does. So can you talk a little bit about you then? You call this a trifecta of loss and your husband passed away. And then soon after that, you lost your parents. Correct. My father, when he was 68, he had a stroke very suddenly. And then he began to deteriorate and um, he passed about a year and uh, three months after, after my husband was very, very hard and very shocking and also began to show me how my same inability to uh, really admit that that um, things were happening around me um, continued. I saw with my father that one day my mother said out of the blue, oh, your dad's in the hospital. I was like, wait, what? And he passed away a few weeks later. I didn't even know. Now I got to see him, thank goodness. Um, but I wasn't there at his bedside when he passed. And again, I started to like, wait, what's happening here? He's so ill that he's in the hospital and you're not telling me I had to ask. So I started to see how my tendency to avoid and to distract as a way to numb out from negative feelings was a deeply, deeply inherited familial trait. Um, and it was all of us. We were all uh, a bit of the walking wounded. And then my, after, right after my dad passed, my mother had a stroke. And, and she slowly deteriorated and passed away uh, a few years later as well. But by, by the time I, my mom, I had done enough work <laughs> that by the time my mom, uh, I, could, I could tell it was the end. And I remember I was telling my brother and my sister, look, this is happening there. No, it's not. And I, it just, I, it was like looking at myself in the mirror and I thought, well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to avoid this and I'm not going to miss this. And I was finally able to come face to face with, with the hardest thing there is in life, which is death. Right. And I made it at her bedside. And as sad as that is, I was so grateful to have the strength and the ability to be with her, to comfort her, and to you know, close out the cycle with someone who brought you into this life, to be able to usher them out. Mm-hmm. Right. And this was in the middle or kind of the beginning of your new understanding of, or the new way you were living? That's right. I mean, for me, that was 
finally an opportunity to meet, an opportunity to see like, okay, I did it. I, I, I did something I thought was unthinkable, which is to be emotionally present with um, my mom at the moment of her death. I mean, something like that to me before would have been unthinkable. I couldn't handle, I couldn't imagine that kind of pain. But after I did it, I, I, I realized that it's, it's a gift. I mean, this is what life is, right? You cut off the lows, you cut off the highs too. And you just sort of live this like meh life in the middle. You can't, I mean, I would, trust me, I'd cut off the lows if I didn't cut off the highs. I tried, but <laughs> it doesn't work that way, right? So you have to stay connected. And when you're connected, when your heart is connected, when you're present, you feel it all. You feel all the range of emotions. And what I didn't realize was you build your capacity for, um, for pain, for, for anything. And, you know, if, if this year hasn't taught us anything, it's like the hits just keep on coming. Right. And (laughs) this capacity to hold uh, and to be resilient and to persevere and to, and to be compassionate in the face of adversity, we all have it in us, but we have to work on developing them like a muscle. My old coaching instructor used to say, you have to develop the body of a coach. And this is something I, I talk about in my book. And I'm like, well, what, what is that? What's the body of a coach? And he said, compassion is actually the ability to stay in the presence of suffering. And he said, problem solving actually is quite the opposite of, of being compassionate, right? And I, I remember when I heard that, I was, I was like, I had a little bit of shame because I was that person, which is you couldn't get half a sentence out about an issue. And I'd be like, oh, I know how to solve that. I got it. Here we go. Here's my five point plan. And it's because I wanted to stay away from the icky feelings that were coming up. So it's Layla, back away and just be with what's coming up and just say, gosh, that must be hard. I'm sorry. I mean, that to me 10 years ago was alien. Like, why would I do that? What does that do? How does that Mm -hmm. help? Because people just want to be heard and seen. And that means that they are loved. And I just Mm -hmm. did not understand that before. Do you... I mean, in the midst of this loss and in, in, in the onslaught that you were facing, is there an actual moment where you saw yourself start to change or, or was it gradual? I mean, was there like a saturation point where you couldn't hold it anymore or, or was this just sort of like a little light creeping under the door? How, did, how mm-hmm. was it for you to change? I like that. I like that um, metaphor. I wish there. I wish you could flip a switch, and maybe some people can do that. I was really stubborn, and I, I fought, I fought against softening up and being vulnerable, and, and I, and it's because my, you know, my my ego thought that if I allowed myself to do that, that I wouldn't be able to protect myself, because right, I developed that coping mechanism that I'm strong, I'm capable, don't mess with me as a defense mechanism to be able to handle uh, a childhood with parents that really weren't very present for me. And so I couldn't rely on them to take care of me. So I had to rely on myself. And so asking someone who had to rely on themselves 
to take care of anything to, hey, put that down. It's okay now. You don't need to do that. Be vulnerable. Well, what do you mean? (laughs) Uh, it, It just, it doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense. And so it was a really very deep, deep process to allow myself to slowly peel back the layers and realize I'm not, I'm not five. I'm not six. I'm not nine. I'm a grown woman with a lot of capacity and agency, not only to take care of myself, but my daughter, others. I don't need to hold on to that armor. I don't have to have it on so tight. I can, I can lay it down. I can allow myself to show my softer side. And when I did that is when I started realizing that there was actually strength in my softness, which is why I actually named the book Strong Like Water. Um, I don't know if you know Lao Tzu. He was, he was an old Chinese scholar and philosopher, and he wrote something called the Tao Te Ching, which really translates into the way. And it was these 81 verses all about life. And this was written, I think, in 600 BC. And one of them is called Be Like Water. And it's a verse that really talks about how whatever is fluid, soft, and yielding, like water, will always overcome whatever is rigid and hard, like rock. And I started realizing that to be soft like water didn't mean I didn't have agency. It didn't mean I couldn't get things done. It just meant that you got them done in a different way, right? And they really align with the more feminine qualities of empathy and collaboration, compassion. Not to say that men, this isn't a male-female thing, but these are masculine qualities and feminine qualities. We all have masculine and feminine qualities inside of us. And I, for a long time, overused my masculine qualities, which is sort of the command and control and get it done and linear and let's go. And those are awesome. And we need to have Mm -hmm. them and -hmm. they need to be balanced, right? With the allowing (laughs) and the making space. And, um, and, you know, that's in our vernacular today, which I love. And it wasn't even 10 years ago, I would say Brene Brown really brought it to the forefront. Mm -hmm. So, so how does this new understanding inform your parenting? Such a good question. Well, as a parent yourself, you know that you have to meet each of your children where they are and how you parent one child is probably different than how you parent Mm -hmm. the others, right? I figured out pretty early with with the help of my daughter's therapist who she was and and what she needed from me. And my daughter's pretty hard on herself. And so I learned really quickly that I had to take a softer approach with her because she already had that strong inner critic that um, that was demanding she be, you know, in a certain way. And so I'm just very, very aware when I want to come out guns a blazing. It's like, hold on a minute. <laughs> Who is this for? And when I do, because I'm not perfect and I and I and I say something or do something or lose it, which I do, um, I am able to go back and say, um, by the way, that was not about you. That was about me. <laughs> and I'll uh-huh. tell her and I'll say, here's the story I was telling myself. You didn't do your homework. And I and 
And so the narrative that goes on in my mind is, oh, she didn't do her homework. Uh, she's going to flunk out of school. She's not going to be able to get a job. She's not going to be able to take care of herself. And then she's going to be homeless somewhere. And she looked at me like, are you crazy? I'm like, I know it's crazy. It's crazy. But I, I at least let her know that it was about me and not her so that she didn't, she didn't shut down. And so we have yeah. that relationship now where she'll be like, are you telling yourself a story? And I'm like, I am. I'm telling myself a story. <laughs> I really like that. I think I should take that and steal it. I Feel really free. like that. Now you broke that down. <laughs> Maybe I asked the question for selfish reasons. <laughs> so then in this last few minutes that we have together, can you, can you tell me why was it important for you to write the book? Why was it important to write the book and put it into the world? I think when I first started writing it, it's because I wanted to make sure I captured that period of time because there were so many rich learnings and I wanted, I, I didn't want to forget. And my daughter was only three when all of this started happening and I wanted something to give to her. And as I started to write, it really became part of my healing and I would, I would write something and I would say, well, what that doesn't make, and I was trying to imagine a reader making sense of something. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Hold on. <laughs> made sense in my head, but it doesn't make sense on the page. And I thought, hmm. And then that would be an opportunity for me to unpack a little more, a little more, a little more. And so it really ended up helping me in my, in, in, in my transformation and in, in my reconnecting to myself and to soften and to put the armor down and to recognize that I am strong and soft. And then as I started to share some excerpts in the book and some of my ideas, almost everybody I, I mentioned it to, and a lot of these were women, friends of mine, they'd say, oh, I know what you mean. Oh, I've done that. Oh yeah, this is something I've done. And I started to realize that my personal story, I think is just one example of the human condition <laughs> and and maybe it's particular to uh, women that are that may have done eldest children or are wired <laughs> in the way that you know that that I am and maybe you are and so it might resonate with a particular type of person but I thought gosh if my journey and if the pain that that I've been able to go through and the adversity I've been able to overcome can help anybody else then Let's do it. And then the biggest thing I think is right now, even though there's so much strife in the world and so much divisiveness and polarizing of ideas, at the same time, at the same time, I really feel like there's an awakening and a coming together. And I see it happening with women and I think it's so beautiful. And I feel like all of us, I mean, look, you're, you're coming out with your version of your story. I think we learn through our stories. They're very personal. And we, all of us as women, are having the courage to raise our voices and to tell our stories as a way to come together to, to not be ashamed of whatever it is that we haven't wanted to admit. And I feel a strength when I meet someone like you. I want to be your best friend now, Renee. I want to go up to Seattle. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think that's part of this rebalancing that's happening now. The, 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 the masculine and the feminine now. Like I think for such a long time, it was, especially in business, it was the patriarchy. And this is how we do things. And you want to be successful, you got to do it like this. And now in the last 10 years, it's authenticity in leadership. It's vulnerability empathy. These are not things we talked about 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. 
And so what we're saying now is, hey, you got to have both. You got to be both the masculine and the feminine together, intertwined back and forth for all of us. And I feel like the women are are bringing up all these stories. And this reminds me, the Dalai Lama said something like, um, the future is something about that Western women will be the ones that, that have us wake up, that the future is is in the hands of Western women because we're privileged, mm-hmm. right? And we have, mm-hmm. and we're able to, to tell our stories and to come together in community. Mm-hmm. Right. We've got this platform and we've got this privilege. That's right. That's right. Layla, do you, have you shared your manuscript with your siblings? I have told them about it. And I try to be very, very neutral when it comes to them. But I have told them about the parts that they're, that they're into it, that they're in, in the book. And, and you know, they seem fine. The, the people it would have touched most acutely are gone now, which is also part of the reason why I've, I found that I could write the book and get it out there. Tell me about where, when the book is coming out again and where people can find your work. The book will be coming out April 13th, 2021. Um, and it's available right now for pre-order on Amazon. You can go onto my website at laylataraf.com and there is a tab that says book and you can uh, order it through there and learn a little more about, about the book and the story and, and myself. Great. I'm really looking forward to reading it. <laughs> It'll be exciting. Thank you. And I'm really looking forward to reading yours too. <laughs> Layla, thank you so much for really, really sharing what you've gone through and how you've come to this new place in your life. I really, I really appreciate it. And I, I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Oh, you too. Thank you so much, Renee. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening. 